Today, we begin our new series looking at the story of Esther in the Old Testament. Esther is unique in the Bible. It's the only book of the Bible not to mention God at all. In contrast, it mentions the name of the Persian king Xerxes over 100 times. Yet this story shows us that God is at work in our lives, often in unseen or indirect ways. He is the God of providence. That means that you and I, we have choice, we have freedom, yet he remains ultimately in control. He is the composer and conductor of the symphony of our lives. And this rings true in the everyday, think about it. If we're sick, we might pray for God to heal us and sometimes he does heal miraculously, but often he heals us through the medical profession. Or you might pray for that promotion at work, but you still need to work hard. Or sometimes we might pray for Mr. or Mrs. Wright, but we still need to go on that first date. And God is the one in control behind the scenes, which is why I've entitled this talk today, God Behind the Scenes. We're going to look at an overview of the first three chapters of this challenging story, but one in which we see a glimpse of the God behind the scenes. And if you've been going through a tough time recently, or maybe you're going through a tough time right now, I really believe that this sermon series will bring you great encouragement as well as practical advice. So we're going to begin by looking at the first five verses of the story. So this is Esther chapter one, verses one to five. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. The story begins in Susa, one of uh, the capitals in what was at the time the greatest empire in the world, the Persian empire. We're told in those verses that it goes from India to Kush, the Nile region. That's the equivalent landmass today of over 20 countries. And the king is the mighty Xerxes. It's the third year of his reign, so that's 483 BC, about two and a half thousand years ago. So that places this story just a little bit after Nehemiah had begun to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish exiles had been returning from Babylon, with the Babylonian empire having been superseded by this one the empire of the Medes and Persians. And King Xerxes was an impulsive character, prone to rash and lavish actions. And as we read chapter one, we see that he's gathered all of the nobles, princes and advisors from across his kingdom to throw this huge party. In fact, we're told the party goes on for 180 days. Think about it. That's a sixth month bender. Well, I mean, why does he do that? We're not told. But if we look at uh, the history books, a little bit after this time, the Persians attack Greece. So we think that he's probably casting the vision to them 
of expanding his empire that led to the invasion of Greece. Do you remember the movie 300? Well, at the end of this six month party, he throws a banquet for seven days. And unlike the rest of the party, everyone in the city of Susa is invited to this final banquet. They must have been overwhelmed by the opulence on offer. And on the seventh and final day of the feast, King Xerxes want to, wants to show off his most prized possession, his queen. Her name is Vashti, which means sweetheart. And Queen Vashti has also been running a, a banquet for the women separately. And when she's called by the king's uh, servants to come and attend his feast, she does something shocking. She refuses to go to the king's presence. So he loses face. And King Xerxes is furious. He reacts by uh, immediately making a law. The Medes and Persians were famous for their binding laws. And this law says that Vashti can never again come into his presence and she's no longer queen. But that means Xerxes is now without a queen. So in Esther chapter two, from verse two, we read this. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. So the search for a potential new queen begins. And at this point of the story, we're introduced to a Jew called Mordecai. His grandfather had been brought into exile by the Babylonians and they still live to this day in Susa. And Mordecai had a young cousin called Hadassah, who was an orphan. So Mordecai very kindly adopts Hadassah as his own daughter. And her Persian name is Esther which means star, and she is utterly beautiful. And so the king's men, as part of their search for the next queen, they see Esther, recognize her beauty, and they take her as part of the search. She's taken to the royal harem, and under the supervision of the king's eunuch, she undergoes 12 months of beauty treatments. Then when it's her time, she's taken to the king to spend the night with him. And she wouldn't return to him afterwards unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. And we then read this, Esther chapter two, verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So what do we learn from this emerging story in the book of Esther? Well, the first thing we learn is this, bad stuff happens in life, but God can use it. God might not cause the bad stuff to happen, but ultimately he can use it to bring about his redemptive purposes. 
Now, it could be tempting to summarize the story of Esther as a sort of sweet Disney fairy tale. Esther wins the beauty pageant. She triumphs in Persia's Got Talent. She gets a free one-year subscription at a beauty spa. And then she's made queen, the little orphan girl who is now the most powerful woman on the planet. How wonderful. But think about it. The reality is more like this. This Jewish girl has been trafficked, groomed, and then forced to sleep with a man who then marries her. Esther was probably going through a really tough time. If you're going through a tough time, well, what we'll see in this story is that God can still use the chaos and troubles of our lives to work out his plans for redemption and restoration. As it says in Romans 8, 28, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. So don't lose hope. It may feel like God is absent, but he is with you. And we also see that Esther gets some practical help at this time. We're told that Mordecai every day walks near to the harem to check on how Esther's doing and to give her support and to send her messages of advice. For example, he says, don't reveal your nationality. And we all need a Mordecai in our lives, somebody who can be near us, support us, and give us advice during the tough times. I wonder who could be your Mordecai. The second lesson we see is this. We are given divine moments in life to alter circumstances. You know, there are times when we have those moments, I call them divine moments, when through our actions, we genuinely have the potential to change things, to alter circumstances if we act in a certain manner. And Esther will get her chance to act in a certain manner and change the outcome of not just her life, but that of her entire people. And we'll hear more about that next week. But first, we see in the story that Mordecai is faced with one of these moments. In Esther chapter 2, verse 21, we read this. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Now, it was not completely unusual for bodyguards to try and turn on those whom they were meant to be guarding. In fact, after 21 years of being king, Xerxes is eventually assassinated by one of his bodyguards. But here, Mordecai foils this particular assassination plot. And by reporting it to Esther, who then tells the king, and Esther makes sure that Mordecai gets credit, Mordecai then even gets his name written in the book of the king. 
Now, Mordecai probably was not aware of the full importance and significance of this divine moment in his life. But by chapter six, we'll read how the king remembers this event and Mordecai's help in it. And it will play an important part in beginning to turn around the fate of the Jewish people. In fact, the king's remembrance of this event in chapter six is in fact the turning point of the whole book of Esther. Up until that point, the book's pretty much all disaster. After this point, the book will be pretty much all redemption. And, you know, likewise in our lives, we're not always aware of the full significance of events at the time. So you might well ask, well, how do I make sure that I don't miss these significant divine moments in my life? And the answer is probably simple. Just do the right thing in the everyday events of our lives and believe that there's no such thing as small or insignificant moments in our lives. Just a little over two years ago, I went to London to attend the leadership conference, which is held there in the Royal Albert Hall. I got into the building uh, quite early and uh, on my ticket, I could see my seat number. I found my seat and I sat down. And sitting in front of me was a young woman and a young man. And I sort of felt this prompting by the Holy Spirit that I should say hi to them and introduce myself. But if I'm honest with you, I kind of didn't really want to do that because, well, I'd flown in from KL that very morning. I'd landed at Heathrow. I'd gone straight to the leadership conference. I was jet lagged. I was tired. And I, I just wanted to be quiet but I felt the nudge of the spirit. So I, I leant forward, I said, hi, I'm Miles, introduced myself, and we started chatting. Over the next two days of the conference, we, we, we spoke a lot and it turned out that the young woman, uh, she was a Christian, uh, the young guy, well, he wasn't really too sure what he believed, and they were exploring the possibility of, you know, maybe dating seriously. Well, at the end of the two days together, I was able to pray for them both, and it was a really significant time. I said goodbye and came back to KL. A year later, I went back to London again for the leadership conference, got into the Royal Albert Hall, found my seat, sat down, it was a different seat this time, and to my amazement, who comes and sits right in front of me again? The same young couple. In the year that had passed, uh, he'd gone on an alpha course and they'd started dating together. Again, we had two days chatting and, and again, praying with them. About one month ago, I had the huge privilege of conducting their marriage, their wedding service. Now, I can't take credit for that. That's down to them and God. But when I look back at that first moment of meeting them, I now realize the significance of that time. At the time, I had no idea where it would lead. But these are the sort of moments that God gives us quite frequently. And we are to seize the day. Now, as a reward for his actions, Mordecai has his name written, we're told, in the book of the king. But be encouraged. So do you. You have your name written in the book of the king of kings. You have your name written 
in the book of life. So we are to uh, believe that whatever the mess in our life, the troubles we face, God can use it. We are to believe that in the everyday, we're given significant moments, no matter how small they may feel. And the third thing that we see in this story is that there are times when we must stand with courage. There are moments in life when the Lord may ask you to take a stand of courage. And this will certainly be the case for Esther later in the story. We'll see that it might have been her outward beauty and excellence that made her queen, but it's her inner, inner beauty, her strength of character, which makes her really useful to God and ultimately a deliverer for her people. But first, we see that Mordecai takes a literal stand of courage. In Esther chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, we read this. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honour. Mordecai literally, literally took a stand, refusing to bow down to this guy called Haman, who becomes the evil villain of the story. I wonder, is the Lord asking you to be courageous in an area of your life, to stand up for what is right or to step out in faith in something? You know, when Jesus was tempted, uh, in the wilderness by the devil. The devil shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, look, all this will be yours if you just bow down to me. In other words, you can have a shortcut to your ministry, a shortcut which would have meant excluding the horror of the cross, if you bow down to me. But Jesus, thankfully, would not bow down. I wonder, is the Lord asking you to stand in courage at this time? The fourth lesson that we see from these first three chapters is that obedience has consequences, but so does disobedience. Haman shows the depth of his depravity by his reaction to Mordecai refusing to bow to him. We read this, this is chapter three, Verse five, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learnt who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman then goes to the king and he says to him, look, there's this group of people in your kingdom who do not know your customs, they don't obey your laws, and it's in the best interest of the empire to destroy them. And Haman then offers to, to pay into the royal treasury the equivalent of what would be today about $220 million 
to fund this killing spree. And Haman doesn't mention to the king that the people he's talking about are the Jews. And at this point, nobody in the story knows that Queen Esther is herself a Jew. But Xerxes is so nonchalant that the king doesn't even question Haman. He just says, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, if it's best. Uh, but you don't even have to pay. Uh, don't, you know, keep the money, just do it. So Haman goes away with what he wanted and he cast the poor, which was the lot, to find out on what day this terrible genocide should take place. He gets a date and then he writes a royal decree and sends it in many languages to every corner of the empire, instructing all the people on that set, set day to, quote, destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children. And within this vast Persian empire, remember, is the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah may have begun the rebuilding of the holy city, but now that city, as well as all of God's entire people themselves face state-sanctioned genocide. Now, you might be thinking, well, hold on a minute. Isn't this like a bit of an overreaction by Haman just because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him? Well, yeah, it certainly shows the evil heart of the guy, but it's more than that. You see this history involved here. This is the consequence of disobedience. Back in history, we read in 1 Samuel 15, how uh, the Jews fought this battle with the Amalekites who had attacked them. The Amalekites were led by King Agag. And God told King Saul, the king of Israel, look, don't worry, I will fight for you, but you must not spare King Agag. But Saul is tempted by the plunder on offer, and he disobeys God, and he lets Agag go. Fast forward in time, and we read here now in the book of Esther that Haman is an Agagite. In other words, he's a direct descendant of King Agag. That one act of disobedience by Saul had consequences, and now it has led to the planned annihilation of God's entire people. Our disobedience has consequences. And the consequences of our disobedience ultimately led to the cross. But obedience also has consequences. We'll see that with Mordecai's and Esther's obedience. And I wonder where might God be asking you to be obedient at this time? But do you know, Mordecai and Esther's obedience was just a, a foretaste of Jesus's obedience. And his obedience had the most all-encompassing and wide-ranging consequences. The forgiveness of our sins. That you and I are forgiven, we get a fresh start, and life in its fullness is now yours and mine. Obedience has consequences. And this leads us to our final point, the fifth lesson that we see in the story is that ultimately God turns the tables. However bad the situation looks 
And maybe right now for you, it looks pretty bad. God can turn things around. And when he does, it can turn quickly. As Joseph says in Genesis 50, that which the enemy intended for evil, God used for good. And we will see in the following weeks that the trafficked orphan girl Esther becomes her people's deliverer. What looked like certain genocide for the Jews actually ends up with their liberation and protection. But Esther, again, is just a mere foreshadow of the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. In Jesus, God did not remain behind the scenes, but he stepped into the foreground of our lives, born as one of us, and he turned the tables once and for all by dying on the cross so that you can know freedom and life rather than our annihilation. God turned the cruelest event in history, the crucifixion of his son Jesus, into the greatest victory for all humankind. You know, Xerxes was known as the king of kings who threw lavish banquets, but he wasn't. Jesus is the true king of kings. And when we put our trust in him, a lavish heavenly banquet awaits us because on the cross, God has turned the tables. Amen. Why don't we pray right now? We're going to ask the presence of God once again to step into the, not just the foreground of our lives, but the very center of our hearts by his Holy Spirit. So you might want to just place your hands out in front of you. This is saying, God, I'm not interested. This can be helpful body language to say, I really want to receive from you right now. As it says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit, the verb fulfilled, present continuous tense, over and over again. So just echo this prayer in your heart right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord God, would you fill me again with the presence of your Spirit? And just allow his spirit to fill you right now.